0: Welcome to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb, helping you find purpose and joy in your life and relationships. For more teaching and resources, visit largerstory.com. After having a what I felt was a very rich conversation at the dinner table with six or seven of you guys, I think I was more affirmed in the realization that a week like this does provide some special opportunities. And somehow the evening makes them more real is that not true sometimes and you'll all be um, packing up and some driving some flying and I don't think this is uh, the most important time in your life or anything like that you can get kind of ridiculously hyper about stuff but but I sure do think that that, that important things can happen and um, I just want to read a verse make a comment on it and I want us to pray for just a few minutes together and then I'll continue with some of my thoughts from this afternoon and then I hope by 9 o'clock, I hope that there'll be provoked some good thoughts. That'll be reaching into your hearts and not just your heads. And I hope they'll be coming from my heart and not just my head. Hebrews chapter 1. I was studying this recently and reading some of the comments of G. Campbell Morgan on it. Let me just read you the verse. So you all know it real well. In the past, God spoke. And he spoke in a different way than he's speaking now. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, I presume referring to where we are now, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Campbell Morgan's comment on that particular verse, that's all I want to read. Campbell Morgan's comment on that particular verse is, that's God's final speech. He says, Christ, and shuts up. Can you imagine what that might mean for a counselor? Someone comes to my office and says, I'm depressed, and I say, Christ. I wouldn't last long in the business, would I? If every Sunday you got up and said, Christ, that's all I have to say. Well, obviously we should say more than the word. I mean, he is the way, the truth, the life. He's all the scripture. He's everything. And then somehow we've got to say him because he's all there is. Um, When when I get a chance to chat with people in ministry as I had tonight at the dinner table, I really come away impressed with the fact that honest people living in this world have some realization that they've got to have more of Christ. None of us today has enough of Christ to get us through tomorrow. Is that true? I'm 48 been saved for 40 years. Do I know Christ? Well, of course I do. So do you. Um, he's knowable, but he's also also infinite. And what I know of him today, I don't think is sufficient for me to handle what I face, what I'm going to face tomorrow, whatever that is. So I've got to know him better. I've got to know what it means to walk with him. I've got to know what it means to sense his presence. I've got to know what it means to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. What does it mean to know Christ? Someone recently put it this way to me. Most of you here don't know me and I don't know you. I know some of you here. Some of you I know fairly well. But most of you guys I haven't met for the first time today. Mm-hmm. I haven't spoken to most of you. I haven't had a chance. But if you were to say to me, Larry, I want to get to know you. What would that imply? Wouldn't it imply that um, that you'd like to spend time, and you'd like me to open my heart? And let me tell you what I'd feel, because I've done that with some people. Um, I've, I've opened my heart, and I've said things very openly to a few folks, a few folks who I think know me very well. One man knows everything, my wife doesn't, and I won't tell her, and I think that's right. But even the one who knows me best in terms of my sharing my soul most deeply, I suppose Dan, although I haven't told him this particular thing, I've, he knows me by anybody else, I suppose, in terms of a brother. I don't feel all that known by people, even by Dan or my wife or by others. It seems to me that that I go through things that you don't go through. And you go through things that I don't go through. Isn't that right? So if I'm going to know the Lord, what did Paul say? The next phrase was the fellowship of the sufferings. I wonder if knowing Christ simply means to live like him in such a way that you begin to experience the reactions to yourself that he experienced. If I start living like him... And I start getting hated like him. And I start struggling like him. And there's certainly a difference in the struggle of impeccable humanity and depraved humanity. And I fall in the latter category and he's the former. There are some distinctions, but there are some overlaps. Maybe if I start living like him more and more and start paying the price in particular ways, like right now we're facing some business decisions in our operation that I've not faced before. I'm not a businessman. I'm not a manager. Most of you guys feel the same way. You're now running a business called the church, but you weren't trained for it. You were trained to exegete and preach and do a few things like that, and now most of your time is spent running a business. That's how I feel sometimes. And I'm in the middle of a situation now where I talked with a a consultant to our operation yesterday, and and um, it became very clear that handling certain things we're going through now in a Christian way is going to cost me something. I don't like that. So if I really follow through on what I told this person yesterday I'm going to do, I think I'm going to struggle a little bit. I wonder if that's going to get me to know Christ a little better. I don't think you're going to know me. If you want to know me, you're not going to know me by just pouring out my heart to you. I think that's included. I don't think that's a bad thing. But let's get away from the word vulnerability and honesty as the core of everything. I don't think it is. Let's understand that, that the only way I'm going to feel like you know me is if when I describe certain things that I go through you're able to describe similar things that you go through and then I'll know that you feel what I feel. And then you'll know me. Uh, up until I lost my brother, I don't think I had any idea what it was like to lose somebody that you're close to. But now you tell me you lost your brother, right away, I have some idea what you feel. I think I know you. What doesn't mean to know Christ. We're all agreed that if we don't know Christ better, we're going to shrivel up. And my remarks this afternoon and now again tonight are directed toward my own journey of trying to figure out what it means to know to know Christ better. I'm talking about some mistakes that I made, but I'd like us to before I resume my comments, I'd like us to pray I'd like us to pray to Christ. He's the final word, we want to be saying Christ. And all that we say, we want to be saying Christ. What else is there? And I'd like us to pray to him and just ask that um, whatever can be accomplished through our time together tonight, whatever the Lord, if he can work through Balaam's ass, I guess I might have something to say. um, If if he can accomplish something through me tonight, and I tell you, that used to be a false humility. It isn't anymore. At least not as much as it was. But if something good can happen tonight, then I really want it to happen. And I want us to pray. So maybe just three or four but just in a sentence prayer. um, Very briefly, don't pray a pastor's prayer, just pray. and just pray whatever comes from the deepest part of your soul that you're aware of. And say it out loud because our hearts will echo with whatever's coming out of your deepest heart as well. Several so pray, I'll pray, and then I'll resume my comments. understand exactly what you're trying to tell us. Huh. Lord, I want to believe that you're at work in my life when everything seems so wrong and that you're achieving good purposes and you're moving me toward a deeper awareness of yourself. pray that tonight will move me along in that way as well as my brothers. I pray in your name. Amen. Preliminary comment before I get back into my more organized remarks. What is the good of going through all this pain stuff? Why get honest? I think we live in a crazy counseling culture where we've reacted against the rigid pharisaical fundamentalism and we've tried to open ourselves up to the deep things of our hearts and all the rest of it. Sometimes I think we, we, we stop there. Sometimes I think we, we get a hold of our souls and try to be very vulnerable with each other and and sometimes get in tears and feel like something deep has happened because we've felt deeply and cried together. I think a lot of cries are useless a lot of tears are useless. Do you agree with that? I cry a lot. And ninety percent of my tears I think are immature, ridiculous, waste of time. Maybe ten percent really means something. There's, there's a value to pain, but I think it's, it's when you start opening yourselves up, as, as we're encouraging this week, I think it's, it's, it's not a, a big step to go from opening yourself up to going to cynicism. Because what you're going to hope is that, what I hope is that, at some point I'm going to find some level of honesty, some level of vulnerability that's going to do something for me that I'm demanding be done I remember about two years ago I had a new thought I kind of live on thoughts I'm far more encouraged by a new thought than I am by people that probably isn't good but it's true and I remember sitting with my son Rachel and I were in England on a little sabbatical that we had for a couple of months in Cambridge best time of our lives and our our kids flew over for Christmas and took my one boy out to lunch he was about 19 I guess at the time and I was telling about this new thought that I had that was going to do everything you know and he kind of laughed at me. I mean, no 19-year-old kid's son ought to laugh at their dad, but he laughed at me. And he said, I wonder what it'll be next year. You know? And, and I remember feeling very stung by that in a good way, because we're, we're wanting to find something that, that does something. And, and I'm not sure if, if that demand is, is something different than the energy of building a city. I want us to think for a few minutes about the energy of Cain that might be resident in our hearts, building cities. What does that mean? First thing I talked about was that if we're going to find Christ in ever-increasing ways, if we're going to know the Lord better next year than we know Him today, if when I'm 80 years old, if I live that long, if I'm going to know Him in a way that that um, there'll be power and People who know me will be drawn to the Lord because of me. If that's going to happen, then I think one thing I need to do is learn to identify the energy of Cain within me and learn the process of deep repentance. So now the question is, what's the energy of Cain? Well, first thing to realize is the energy of Cain occurs when it becomes clear you're outside the garden. God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden and then long comes Cain and Abel and he murders Abel and God banishes him to wandering forever and the first thing he does is build a city Uh, basically saying that I'm not going to I'm not going to trust that God there's anything good about God at all I mean God just gets kind of mad at me for killing my brother and he wants me to be miserable the rest of my life so I'm going to fight him I'm not going to believe that God is good and by the way can you take a, a two minute diversion here I just had a thought that occurs to me and I'm trying to be flexible tonight um This notion of of God not being good I I I really think that's really central to depravity The issue that we don't believe God is is really, really good Have you ever asked the question uh, Paul teaches both in Corinthians and Timothy That Eve was deceived and Adam Adam wasn't Have you ever asked the question What was she deceived about That Adam was not deceived about Whatever you believe Adam Whatever you believe Eve was deceived about You have to then say Adam wasn't deceived about it Because Paul says that and he says it's a very strong language in both Second Timothy 2, is that where it is, as well as Second Corinthians 11. Um, where he says, I don't want you to be in 2 Corinthians 11, I don't want you to be deceived as Eve was, because Eve was totally deceived. The word is very strong in both places. Eve was totally deceived and Adam wasn't deceived. About what? Well, I imagine if we made this into a conference, we'd have, how many guys we have here, 45? We'd have 45 opinions maybe, I don't know. But let me tell you mine for what it's worth. What had God revealed about himself before the fall? Well, he revealed his generosity. He was a garden. Everything you want, everything you possibly want is here. Have a blast. Here's a guy, here's a girl, you know. Do your thing, do what comes naturally, have a good time. So he was very generous. He was very kind. He was into pleasure. He was that kind of a God. The other thing he revealed about himself before the fall, and I'm sure there's more things than this, but these two stand out. One, his kindness, generosity, and, and pleasure. Um, the second thing is that he has standards. He's holy. He's God, and they're not. So don't eat this fruit. We have, his, you know, we'll get along if you realize you're not the creator. As long as you understand that, we'll we'll do fine. So don't eat this fruit. Well, so God had revealed at some level His goodness, and Satan comes along and and basically says, um, Did God really say? And of course he really is partly questioning Adam there because God talked to Adam before Eve came along and Adam had to pass it along to Eve and then Satan says, did, did God really say, did your husband get it straight? Is this really what the, what, what the word of God is? Um, and don't you understand, Eve, that God's holding out on you? There's something better available to you than what, what you're getting in the garden? I think Eve came to the conclusion in her deception that God wasn't good. But how about Adam? Adam wasn't deceived, so I presume that he believed all that had been revealed up to that point. Question, what had not been revealed about God's character up to the point of the fall? What could not be revealed about God's character up to the point of the fall? Answer? Well, judgment, grace, ultimately mercy, grace, forgiveness, that that when something comes up like this that God can handle it. And I think that when Adam sinned, when Eve gave him the fruit and said, take a bite, you know, what should Adam have done? We could debate that, I suppose, that what Adam should have done, maybe, in some ideal situation would have been to turn to God and say, I have no idea what to do about this situation. I'm out of my league. i got a woman who disobeyed you. And that put a rift between her and me. There's something wrong now between the two of us. But what I believe about you, what I'm willing to take the risk on, is not that you're good, I already believe that, but I'm going to believe you're good enough to handle even this. He believed God was good insofar as he'd revealed himself, but he didn't believe that there were depths of goodness that had not yet been revealed that he could count on in this particular situation. I think the root of sin is suspicion that God isn't so good. Eve thought God wasn't good. Adam thought God wasn't good enough. I think that's core. Is God good enough to handle this situation? Is God good enough to handle this particular problem? Is God good enough to, to, to move and to redeem this mess in some way that one day I'm actually going to rejoice? I mean, the Christian message is not doom and gloom. It's not pain and misery. It's not everything's terrible. The Christian message is terrific. I mean, it really, really is. I'm so impressed with the way my parents have handled Bill's death. Dad said to me a while ago, he woke up in the middle of the night and he just had a phrase running through his mind. The phrase was, sheer delight. He woke up just thinking, sheer delight. And then he got up and he started pondering, what the dick is that? And then he let his mind wander and it went back to when he was seven years old. His father had been dead for two years. And on Christmas morning, his mother had been able to afford to buy he and his brother a football, a real football. They were very, very poor. Until that point, they had used uh, rags bound by string for their football. Now they had a real one. And the sheer delight of receiving this football on Christmas morning. And then his mind went to, but mother was happier watching her kids get the football. And then he began thinking, what a picture of heaven. And he said, he said, I've got it made. I've not lost Bill. It's all going to be great. And the sheer delight, he's enraptured. And I'm thinking, man, I want to get there somehow. I want to know that. God's not, God's not bad. God's not into pain. God's into pleasure. He always has been he 's the ultimate hedonist, <laughs> not in some oriental sense of heaven 's going to be some sensual pleasure particularly i 'm not sure what the pleasures are Eyes not seen ears not heard, but the spirit has given us a taste um, but but god 's into pleasure and, and it seems to me that our, our real our real question of God is i don 't think so if you 're into pleasure, then how come you let my husband die if you 're into pleasure, then how come you let this if you're if you 're into if you 're such a good god then how come It seems to me that life presents situations that make us very, very aware that we're out of the garden. And when life presents those situations that make us terribly aware that we're out of the garden, our immediate reflexive thought is, God isn't so good, and then the energy of Cain kicks into gear. Now, the question I want to ask you and ponder for a few minutes is, what is going on in your lives, what's going on in my life, that makes me think I'm out of the garden, makes me aware of it? Well, for me, a year and a half ago, Bill's death was a major opportunity for me to realize that I'm not in the garden. Because in the garden, things like that don't happen. And in the new garden, things like that don't happen, but I'm in between the two gardens. And things like that happen all the time. A lot of weeds in my garden. A lot of folks don't have too many weeds in their garden, up until the point. What is it that makes what is it that makes you very aware that you 're not in the garden and whatever the answer is isn 't it true that you 'd like not to think about it because i don 't want to believe that the weeds are as bad as they are? I want to believe things are a little bit better don 't we all have in our minds a certain i do and I think others do a certain um, thought that somebody has figured out the way to live the Christian life so there really aren't any big visible weeds in their particular plot of ground. Don't we all, even as as pastors who, who, um, who know some of the realities of what it means to be a pastor, don't we all have certain automatic illusions about what it must be like to be Chuck Swindoll? Don't you picture his dinner table as kind of going real well? his kids come home and say Daddy I witnessed to a person he didn't get saved today tell me how to witness better <laughs> and Chuck pulls out the family Bible and kind of gives a lesson and Cynthia pours a coffee and the kids take notes and everybody has a prayer, time of prayer and don't you picture Jim and Shirley kind of like that you know not in the case Swindall said to me about two years ago on the way walking out of a restaurant he said you know what it's like having to be good every Sunday to keep a thousand people's salaries intact that's out of the garden What is it for you that makes it clear you're out of the garden? I bet you we could list a thousand things, couldn't we? What are the biggies? Things like the death of a loved one. I'll tell you something else it is for me. It's criticism. Some of you are aware of the two books that have been written against me. Martin Deidre Bobgan from California. written a book called Psychoheresy, a follow-up book called Prophets of Psychoheresy. Uh, the book, "Prophets and Heresy," takes on three people: Gary Collins, Meredith Meyer, and me. And I've been exposed as a heretic. And I've had conferences canceled because people have sent that book to the people that are hosting me at a conference. That makes me mad because I think their book is junk. I think it's poor scholarship. It's unfair to me. It misrepresents me terribly. If I believe what they allege, I believe, I think I should be shot. I don't believe what they allege I believe. I, I really don't. And I get upset by that and it's like, what the dickens is this going on in this lousy world? And I just, all I wanted to do, I mean years ago I had a thought one night sitting in the, on my porch in Florida and out came basic principles of biblical counseling, the first book. Kind of had a thought and thought maybe write a book about it. And, and then things happened and someone said, why don't you try a seminar? And I said, yeah, I'll give a try a seminar. 300 people came to, or 100 people came to my first seminar and I thought, wow, this is good. People said it was great and I thought, hmm, maybe I'm a good teacher. So I began writing books, doing seminars, and now all this, and now I get books written against me. And it's like, doggone it. This stinks. This isn't what I had in mind. I really didn't. I'm out of the garden. I'm out of the garden in the realization that there's times I don't like my wife at all. Sometimes I'm really critical of her. Sometimes I beat her mercilessly, not physically. I haven't done that. But sometimes I beat her mercilessly and I realize I'm out of the garden I'm a sinful man in a sinful world. And and my wife just doesn't respond the way I want her to in certain moments. And and it's legitimate for me to want her to respond in certain ways. And she doesn't. And she really is failing. And that's true. There's times that things are really hard for me. And and I'll make that known to her. and, And she'll not hear it as deeply as I intended you know, our last big fight was a week ago and she was wrong. Um, which I pointed out very carefully um, until I realized how wrong I was. But our last big fight had to do with uh, I came home and I was feeling really stressed and really pressed about my seminar schedule and all the rest of the things. And she had just had a friend of hers over who's an interior decorator picking out wallpaper for the entry to our new home. And, then, and the wallpaper she picked out was real expensive and I just got a royalty check from Zondervan for a lot of money and so she assumed now we can afford this wallpaper stuff and as she started talking about the wallpaper and showing it to me all excited internally my thought was am I ever going to get off the treadmill of having to make money and, and I thought do you have any understanding of the pressures I'm under you spend my money but do you have any understanding of the fact that hey, I make pretty good money but man i work hard to make that money and I'd love not to make as much I really would I'd love just to cut back and do very little. wonder how much I do just for the money. Huh. You start worrying about that and then you start getting mad at her for not being sensitive. So I began saying to her things like, Honey, look, I want you to have the wallpaper but you know the kind of pressures I'm under? And by the time I was finished with my harangue, she was mad at me and I was feeling she was a lousy wife and we had a terrible night. I'm out of the garden. How about you? Where are you out of the garden? Now, When you're out of the garden, what kicks in? Answer, the energy of Cain. What do I mean by that? The city building demand. I'm going to find something I have that I can use right now to my advantage to ultimately, to essentially, make me feel a little better about me and about life. And that becomes my agenda. I think if we were to take the time to look at our backgrounds and our histories, I think we'd find that all of us have some theme to our out of the garden experiences that have produced a wound that's still festering in our souls. There's been a wound that's that that has been inflicted upon us that is still kind of there and it hurts and it's hard and we don't like it. But we found a way to relieve the pain of the wound. We've all found something. Maybe it was some psychological mechanism like dissociation where we just kind of block it out and, 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 and put it over in some other part of our personality and to think about it. Maybe it's just simple old repression or denial or sublimation or all these fancy defense mechanisms. But there's some way that we find that gets us out of our pain and gets our city built outside of the garden. There's a wound that tells us we're out of the garden but then we find some strategy, some way to make it work. Let me tell you mine. When I was a first grader, I'll never forget going into the first grade class, the first day of school. Miss Carol was the teacher. And I'm a first grade kid. And what Miss Carol did is lined up all 20 of us, first grade, five-year-olds, six-year-olds. And she made a judgment by looking at us. On the basis of the judgment, she assigned us to three different tables, three different colored tables. There were some green tables, some red tables, and some yellow tables. And she said, okay. Uh, you go to the red table, and Brenda, you go to the green table, and uh, Sally, you go to the yellow table, and Larry, you go to the red table. And I remember thinking as a first grader, why, why did you put me at the red table? Well, it took me about a week to realize the red table was for the dumb kids. It really was. The kids that were slower were put at the red table. I was put at the red table. The yellow table was for the average kids, and the green table was for the smart kids. And I can recall, literally, you all have your memories, this is one of mine, I can recall sitting at that dumb table, the red table with the other dumb kids that the teacher thought were dumb, and saying to myself, I don't belong here. I'm going to get me to that green table fast. I made it in two weeks. I'm determined never to leave it. My first year in college, after having one semester under my belt, I knew everything there was to know. My parents, who haven't gone to college, I was ready to impress them with my literacy. And over lunch one day, I was waxing eloquent on all the new things I was learning, impressing my parents. And what they should have done was said, you're insufferable and left the table, but they didn't do that. They were very kind. And Dad made a comment to me that I'll never forget. He turned to Mother as I was waxing eloquent and just being as proud as proud could be. And he said to Mother, he said, you know, Larry has a very agile mind. Well, those are words of life. That were good words that the energy of Keene grabbed onto. I'm going to build my city. I can get to that red table or the green table, whatever the smart one was. I forget my color is not that smart. (laughs) I went to graduate school. How'd y'all do in seminary? I did real well in grad school. You know why? I worked harder than anybody in my class. My first year, in addition to classes, I studied 60 hours a week, and I never missed 60 hours. When we had when we got to the doctoral level, the fourth fifth year, five guys got together to study for the doctoral stuff, and I did more work than any of them, and when we got together for our weekly four hour evening sessions and preparation, doctoral exams, I was the one who lectured the other four guys. I had note cards of all the things that we were to study. I came in first in my class in graduate school. That's the red table, folks. What's the energy of Cain? Am I bragging? No, I'm confessing. What's the energy of Cain? I live outside the garden. But I'm smart. I can build my city with my mind. And you know what? It's working. Some of you read my books. You paid 10, 12 bucks for what I've written. And I got 2 bucks every time you gave 12. And I add them all up, that's a lot of bucks. It's working. Y'all sitting here listening, y'all looking at me, and this is amazing. It's working. building my city right now. Is that possible? And you all help me build it? Sure it is. How many of your sermons have basically been helping people build their cities? Here's how to use biblical principles. Here's how to use God. Here's how to use wisdom. Here's how to use this. Do all this and you too can have a city before you get to the one God's preparing. What does it mean to build your cities? Well, it means to use whatever resources you have to overcome your wound. And we all do it.